around the Bible in 80-ish days. So we got the title from this book by uh, John Mark Hicks called Around the Bible in 80 Days. But uh, Lauren White, whose uh, idea, or this class was her idea, she, she was bothered by the fact that this class goes a little bit longer than 80 days. So that's why it's 80-ish days. She's a stickler for the details. Um, so um, it's uh, going to be taught by Lauren White, uh, who is absent today. Um, Jason, do you want to give us an update? She doesn't have a voice. <laughs> why not? He told her to be silent. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think she has congestion. Um, then we have uh, Mark Black. Mark, uh, some of you may know Mark. Um, many of you may not. He's kind of new-ish at Otter Creek. Uh, but Welcome. He, <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> he uh, teaches at Lipscomb uh, in the Bible department, teaches New Testament, uh, has been there 33 years, and has 80-ish days left. <laughs> <laughs> he is also selected because his last name is a color. And uh, so we have white, white black, black, and gold. I'm George Goldman. I also teach uh, at Lipscomb. So uh, welcome to the class. Uh, we will get to talking about it. I want to make, there is one announcement. There will be a prayer gathering at OC West End tonight at 530. The gathering will meet every second and fourth Sunday. So be aware of that. I'm also going to pass around a sheet if you want to give us your email address. Uh, Lauren said she will email people the notes or something from time to time. Uh, also, if you do uh, want to get this book around the Bible in 80 days uh, and read along with us, she will. there's a schedule somewhere around. If you didn't get one, uh, put your email. You'll be emailed a schedule. This is a, a very easy book to read. It's uh, 80 days, and it's really just a couple minutes of reading every day where he kind of, uh, John Mark, goes through the Bible and tries to systematize it. So I'm going to pass this around. If you didn't get a schedule, the secretary will send out an email. So include your email on that piece of paper. Yes, thank you. Um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin, and then... God, we're grateful for uh, the blessings of this day, thankful for this place that we can be in, for everybody who's here. We're grateful, God, for the way that you love us, the way that you've made us, and we pray for your blessings as we study about your word, the way you revealed yourself to us, and Father, how we can live into uh, what you created us to be and to do. We pray this through the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, this class was Lauren's idea, and she teaches a class at Lipscomb called Systematic Theology. 
it's not exactly called that. It's called God creation and new creation. But what it really is is systematic theology. So um, I want to say a little bit about what that means. Uh, Mark and I teach New Testament. That's very clear what that means. Uh, we teach the New Testament. We teach the Bible. Um, systematic theology. What, what's that? Systematic theology. Um, so I, this is going to be a fun discussion. I think what I'm looking forward to is how Mark and I get to react and respond to Lauren's presentation of things in, uh, from a systematic theology lens, um, which is her expertise. So we have different roles to play, I suppose, as the class goes on. And uh, John Mark Hicks, who wrote this book, he's also uh, studied and practiced in systematic theology, although he also knows our field better than we do. So that's the thing about John Mark, and Lauren as well, is to do systematic theology, you have to know a little bit of everything. We just have to know the New Testament. So, um, the, you know, uh, Lee's here in class, Lee Camp. We, we met uh, once, we, we knew each other, undergrad at Lipscomb, and then we met in Chicago one time. He was at, at uh, Notre Dame, and I was at Trinity in Chicago. And we got to have dinner together, and he was telling us, we were talking about our respective PhD programs. He was doing his in ethics and theology, and I was doing mine in the New Testament. And you may not remember this, but he said, I'm just amazed at the idea of story and narrative. It's just really changed my way of thinking about the Bible, and I thought, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I acted like, I, oh yeah, I can see how that would be. <laughs> I really had no idea what he meant by that. But, um, you know, he, he said since then that if you understand the story that you're living in, then you know what ethic, what is ethical to do. If you don't know what the story is, then how do you know what's right and wrong to do? And so it's taken me a long time to kind of understand that approach. I guess I just blindly assume that I'm just reading the Bible and deciding what it means and then trying to apply it um, maybe in a more piecemeal way. But, but how do we think about the whole big story of Scripture? So that's the, the thing about the Bible is it's not written like an encyclopedia. It's not written in a systematic theology with here's the topics and if you want to know what happens when you die then just look up the chapter on death and it tells you. So what we have in scripture is a bunch of, of writings that have been put together and the systematic theologians say let's look at the, the writings as a whole and try to figure out where the story is headed. Um, so it's there's a lot to be, be learned thinking about the Bible this way. Um, so the terminology that John Mark uses in the book is he calls the Bible a theodrama. Uh, systematic theology, they like to make up words. Uh, but it's, it's like a, 
it's, the idea is Theo is it's, it's God, it's just, and it's a drama. It's a story about how God is interacting and working with the world. And there are five acts in the drama. Um, and we might could argue about if this is the right five, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So we start with creation. That's the first act. Um, the second act would be then Israel. So God calls Abraham, and we have the nation of Israel. And a big chunk of our Bible is about God's interaction <coughs> with and through Israel. And then Act 3 would be the Messiah. And it's important to know that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of those promises that God made in Act 2 to Israel. I I heard one time that maybe a Sunday school teacher said, for all we know, Jesus could have been Chinese. And I don't know what the point was. I mean, I think the point was trying to say that God loves you know, all the children of the world. Um, but no, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And, and it serves us well to know how what Jesus was doing fits into this broader narrative of what God is doing in the world. And then Act 4 would be the church, and that is the act that we are currently in. And then Act 5 would be the final new creation. So we have God, we have creation, we have new creation. Uh, act 4 is, you know, we've got, a, we've got some things in the New Testament about what the, the early church did. Uh, we are now 2,000 years later, still trying to apply our place in the story to our time. And uh, N.T. Wright talks about faithful improvisation. And what we are doing is trying to be faithful as we read the story, and then we're improvising how that story should be lived out in our culture in our day and time. It's very different from the time of the New Testament. It's not like we don't have anything to go on, but he uses the example of if you had a, a play of Shakespeare and one of the acts was missing, you, you would, let's say act four was missing, you would read acts one, two, and three, you would read act five, and then you would faithfully improvise act four. So you don't just repeat act three. So as, you know, a church in the modern world, we don't just repeat act three of of Messiah or the church, early church, we have to improvise based on our reading of the story. So this is where uh, theology becomes fun and a good discussion. And uh, Lauren actually sent us some notes that she was going to present today, and so we're basing our presentation off what, she, what we felt like she might say. <laughs> Something along these lines. But she says here, a key point, this is a drama we don't just study, but in which we participate. So we are called into this story, and if you understand the story, as Lee has helped me understand, if you understand the story, then we know better how we are supposed to act as part of that story. And it does make a difference. Um, so uh, Mark is going to help us understand the story of creation. So we're talking about Act 1, creation this morning. And one of the ways that you understand 
the story, and this is what systematic theology helps us in biblical studies do, is they say it's necessary and allowable to look further into the story and then read that information back into earlier parts of the story. So for example, the idea of creation. I'm just going to give one example here of um, God created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but a good question to ask is, well, I wonder why. Why did God create the world? Well, the text doesn't give us that information. It doesn't say. So we have to reason and think about, well, where is the story headed? Maybe that will help us. And so um, John Mark in his book mentions John chapter 17. So I'm going to read John 17, 24 to 26. Um, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. Well, he's actually praying for his disciples. And he's talking to God. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So we get information here that God loved Jesus before the creation of the world. How does that bit of information affect how we read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? I guess it's allowable to say that that tells us that God and Jesus were already in community even before the creation. Um, so that's where textual scholars get a little nervous because we're like, are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to take information from later, even if the people maybe who originally wrote the book of Genesis didn't think of Jesus because it's a Jewish writing? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth had a meaning in its Jewish context, but now we learn that God loved Jesus before the creation of the world. And so then we have systematic theologians <coughs> giving us the idea of a trinity um, and things like that. Uh, so this is where the conversation uh, is headed and gets going. Um, one of the ways that, another way that we further understand the story is to know about how that story was competes with other stories. And so Mark's going to come and share with us some other ancient creation narratives which help us understand the narrative of creation in Genesis. Really good to be here. Uh, my wife Margot and I will be placing membership soon. Uh, we were supposed to go to the discovery class today, but Margot got caught up in uh, Chattanooga last evening babysitting my four grandchildren there, so, so we didn't do that discovery class today. Uh, so I am Mark Black. I've been with them for this one, 34 years, and uh, it's been a marvelous experience. A lot of you I got to know because of Lipscomb. Uh, many of you I don't know, and I look forward to getting to know you. Uh, but I know from what I know, there are a lot of erudite people in this room. In fact, there's a whole lot of erudite. <laughs> um, I would mention uh, 
George went through the five acts, the drama. I do it in six acts. I add right after creation. What we'll be talking about doesn't really matter, but I'd like to put a little more emphasis on this. After creation, there's the fall. And I put that in there because it's the one that I know the most about. <laughs> I can tell you about the fall of humanity because I've got a deep, deep insight. All right. Um, in the ancient world, stories of creation, uh, stories of myth, all of the mythical stories about the gods, um, came about because there was a need to explain what our world is about, uh, what purpose there might be in it, and always in the ancient world, uh, what the gods were up to, why they or he had created a world like this, and then who we are. Uh, given all of that, our place in the world. It was always about creating worldviews. Right? So I want to look back, Lauren says, actually this is biblical scholar type stuff. We look back at uh, behind the text, before the text, at the context. We think that's terribly important. And so we, I want to talk about the cultural context, the historical context, and the theological context. And so what had happened before all of uh, um, before creation, well not before creation, but before Genesis was written. And um, what had happened historically, how did that culture live, and that sort of thing. So I want to talk just very quickly about a uh, Babylonian story. Uh, we call it the Enuma Elish. Perhaps some of you have heard about this. That's the first two words in the Akkadian uh, on this story. For those of you who read Akkadian, uh, I'd love for you to read this to us in the So we need to read the biblical creation story in this context of other competing creation stories because it says something very different. They knew very much about these competing creation stories and what they said about that culture. And so if we understand those, we'll do a whole lot better here. And we'll realize why the Genesis story is told as it is, not historical, as a, you know, not a historical writing primarily, uh, and not a, um, what is the word I'm looking for, not historical, not scientific. So, uh, the Enuma Elish. Here's, here's the story. And this is, uh, this is Lauren's uh, very short summary. In the beginning, there was water. Lots of water. Uh, this water is where the gods were born. They came out of, out of the water. There were two kinds of water, as we know. There was the, uh, the salt water. It was turbulent. It was bitter. It was in the seas, the oceans, of course. And so it was very scary. Uh, and that was the uh, feminine sea. We understand that, don't we? Uh, and then there was the sweet tasting, docile water. The rivers, right? And, you know, the smaller lakes, but it's fresh water. So you got the salt water and you got the fresh water. And when they came together, it created, you know, this new thing. And so you had the masculine and the feminine. And uh, actually, the masculine was a god called Apsu, and the feminine was Tiamat. Tiamat's the one you need to know about, because she's going to be a big part of the story, all right? So they gave birth, when they got together, uh, Apsu and Tiamat, they gave birth to this teeming pool 
of uh, younger gods, right? And they emerged from the water. And uh, these were noisy and raucous gods. I mean, after all, they were just kids. And they came to bother, they came to irritate Apsu, the father god, so much that he uh, created this uh, plan to have the, to kill them all. Tiamat heard about it. She didn't want to kill them all. She told her eldest godson, that's a different thing, son, <laughs> who was a <the> god, <coughs> of what was going to happen. And uh, she joined with them. Well, they, they made this plan to kill him instead, and they did. Uh, so Apsu was, was killed. Now, one of these young gods named Marduk, okay, Tiamat and Marduk are the main ones you need to know. So Marduk was sort of one of the sons, I don't know if that's what you call them when you come from a god and goddess who create you know, lots of uh, gods, but he is uh, ambitious and he becomes kind of the strongest among these younger gods uh, and he's got this restless and conquering spirit uh, and so this this is Lauren's words. The watery orb of his origin becomes too small and confining. He needs to break out of this little part of the world. And so he revolts and he get, gathers an army of monsters uh, to do battle with the salty sea, uh, who is his foremother, his mother Tiamat, because she has changed her mind. She doesn't like these younger gods who killed her consort. So she swept herself into a terrifying frenzy, a primordial hurricane, Lawrence words. Right? So Marduk wins the battle, right? and so he kills his mother, Tiamat. Right? And so he's, he's rid of that threat. And then it hits him that he could do something with that dead body of the goddess. And so uh, he rips her up and down right through the middle and creates the world as we know it, out of her, right? And so you have the heavens and you have the water, basically. And so um, after splitting her down the middle, Lauren likes this phrase, gutting her like a fish. <laughs> uh, so he, he forms the dome of the heavens and the sweep of the earth and he kills uh, her consort as well, and from his blood he makes a multitude of tiny slaves. Anybody want to guess who the tiny slaves are who's going to live on this earth that he's now created? That's you and me. Right? And uh, our job is to serve the gods, uh, make sacrifices to them, keep them gratified, keep them well fed, and to do all the dirty work down here on the earth. Right? Didn't see it as this real... Uh, wonderful job that you should do. So uh, Marduk wanted to be the greatest god of the pantheon. And so he created the world. And so he, he accomplished his world, his goal. He was the greatest. He created the world. And he was the patron deity of Babylon. Right, here's an interesting thing. The same story had been told earlier when the Assyrians were in charge. And it was the Assyrian god who had done all of this stuff. Right? This is the way that the myths about creation uh, uh, kept going. So what we need in light of this is somebody to read Genesis 1, 1 through 10. Somebody who has a Bible. Somebody else be looking at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, 7 through 8. 
So, somebody got Genesis 1 ready, verses 1 through 10. You know this stuff. You've heard this before. Yes. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. <coughs> a formless void. <coughs> and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Can you read verses 26 to oh, 28? Oh, oh, and 26. That, Jeff. 26 to 28. Okay. Oh, in two? No, in one. Oh, 26 and 28. Two, three, right. Okay. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to the likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God's... Oh, God. Okay. That's right. And uh, Genesis 2, 1, 3, 3. Someone? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and on their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. And verses 7 and 8. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. All right. Uh, we're headed to all of that at some point. I'm not sure we can get to all of that uh, this morning. Did you hear a difference in the two creation stories? And can you imagine this creation story that came out of Israel, um, how different it was and what it was saying about Israel and about Israel's God. The story about Marduk, not Marmaduke, <laughs> a god of great names, the story about uh, Marduk was really a story about the greatness of Babylon and how they had conquered and how they had just been brutal to others and how they, they were the great uh, land that would, nation that would last forever. Israel, it's very different. And so, uh, who is the God who creates the world? That's kind of the main question for the next few minutes. Uh, one is, God's, Israel's God 
exists outside creation. Marduk was formed from the creation, from what existed, from these waters. Uh, God creates the waters. God creates everything. God is eternal, and God is alone. Not just the strongest of the gods, but the one God, monotheistic, the God who has control of all of it. Whereas the gods, the other gods, uh, they had control of their own areas. And so uh, Marduk was the god uh, who was the patron deity of Babylon. And of course he did some other things, but they all had their aspects of life or their areas of the earth that they controlled. Incidentally, when we get to the New Testament, this is one of the marvelous things that the Christians were able to tell all the pagans. You've got all these gods who are immoral. They don't care how people act. <clears throat> Look at the God of all of creation. The one God who deals with all of these aspects of life and loves people. And the, the fact is, your creation myths, your stories, have a huge impact on who you are. Whatever you see as ultimate reality, what the world is, what its purpose is, why God or the gods made it, who we are, changes everything. And those stories eventually filter down, and they do control who we are. Uh, we'll talk about that later as well. So I know it's interesting, the creation of Uh, which actually represent, you know, it's not like 
uh, Marduk was working with Babylon so much. But he was the patron deity, but he, he, he worked on this uh, higher level. And so, um, as, as John Mark says in the book so well, God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And so, I created this and so I'm transcendent, but I'm imminent. I'm right there with you. Yes, sir? Yeah, simple question. Um, did the Jewish people have a creation story before they went into Babylonian captivity? Which story is the oldest? The Babylonian story is definitely the oldest. Okay. Written sometime so between 1000 BC, 1500 BC, right. 1000 BC. So, did the Jewish people use the word competing stories? So, did the, did the did Jewish people copy or? The Jewish people. Copied the, the Babylonian story? Copy is not the word I would use. Okay. But they wrote an opposing story knowing such stories as this Babylonian story. And that's why they deal with the same sort of topics. But they answer the questions very, very differently. So there are other creation stories that's even older than the Babylonian story. Maybe, yeah. The Babylonian story, they think, probably came from ancient Sumer, which we think was the earliest real civilization. So it goes back there pretty well. So, uh, number two, Israel's God does not create the world out of violence. It's not all about violence. He's not all about conquering others to make himself the top. There is not that kind of um, attitude in God. He is a peacemaker. He is a one who loves, it's about to say lover. Is that okay? Um, and so it's, he's a very, very different sort of God. Um, Marduk, that world was uh, chaos, was noisy, was violent, was driven by conflict uh, among uh, competing gods. Uh, the God of Israel, obviously, very, very different. Uh, number three, Israel's God creates humans just as Marduk did, but creates humans uh, in his image rather than as slaves. They have dignity to be the caretakers with God of the world. So a very different view of humanity, which again we'll look at much more closely next time. Uh, and then finally, Israel's God uh, is not a God of war, but of peace. And this is to get to the point that he rests on the seventh day. Right? He creates the world and then he stops to enjoy it. And it, it, is a, it is a day of peace. It is a time of peace. I've been studying Hebrews and the Hebrews writer keeps talking about us wanting to be, uh, to join God in this rest, the Sabbath rest, which means to be in God's presence and enjoy God's world working as it is working as it is supposed to be. That has uh, that has always been God's plan. And we'll talk about the fall pretty soon and how that plan got all messed up. And then how God has been upon this uh, uh, this uh, attempt to bring us back to him. 
so that we can enjoy that rest with God. All right. Um, so, to summarize, the God who creates is one who transcends the creation and holds it in being, who creates conditions of life where conditions of life did not uh, exist before, that is, makes it habitable, uh, who is not a tyrant but gives dignity, who is not a God of war but a God of peace. All right, now let's ask the question I want some discussion on since we've got a few minutes here. Uh, why did God create the world? Hey, he's a good God, creates the world, but why? That's a hard question, is it? Yes. Well, in our previous class, <laughs> uh, kind of the whole idea was through creation, God revealed who he was. And so for man to know who God was, so that's the whole one of the ideas of creation was so that people are come to be aware of who God is and then the things that happen and you know we did a lot of talk about science and stuff like that but that's you know, a calling of God to help reveal himself in nature in science and technology and everywhere God be using that this creation to reveal who he is okay all right yes I, I think that's uh, <coughs> you would have liked the class <laughs> What's that? You would have liked the class. I, I'll bet. I'll bet. So, so God creates the world just in a word or two there uh, in order to tell us what kind of God he is. Okay. But why does he create the world itself just to, just to explain his majesty? Or is there something else going on? Why does God cre create people? You ever ask the question, why do we have children? Taxes. Yeah. Taxes. Yeah. Taxes. Not, let me tell you something. You're not saving nearly enough in your taxes. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the answers, why do we have children? Because we just got no clue. That's why God lets 20-year-olds have children. Uh, I think also God has built in this tricky little need. Uh, he said, just in case you don't want to populate the world, I'm going to fix that. You're going to have a hard time living without populating the world. Uh, some of us have had children we weren't actually planning on. I, I almost said wanting, but planning. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, we, we create this children, these children. Why? I think to love them. To love them. Yes. All right. We we want someone to love is that to show how how big we are and that we want to be that we want them to tell us how how good we are I mean, did God did God create us yours too uh, did God create us because he needed his ego stroked uh, so to create people who will worship him what's, what's going on there another answer back here yes I think you wanted interaction okay I mean how boring is it being out there all by yourself? You know, like just the spirit and your son. Let's have a little action. <laughs> okay. See, that's that's what I want is to say it in plainer terms uh, than Laura does. Yes. So it is important to think about the uh, the Trinitarian view of God because it says, as and you mentioned this. 
God was not actually alone. There was this community of Father, Son, and Spirit as we as we know them now. Uh, God in three persons. And we'll let Lauren explain what a person is in that context. But um, yes, God is a God of community and love and created the world I'm going to say four human beings made them in his image, made us in his image for community. Now, I'm not one of those who thinks we can figure all out all of this. Uh, you know, when I stand up here and talk about the God of the universe and ultimate reality, and you're supposed to believe what I say, that scares me a little bit. So read the Bible and, and uh, accept that. But those of us who comment on it, be a little careful about that. Yeah, go I didn't feel like by making me a parent, God taught me and is teaching me still um, how unconditionally he loves me. Because I love my children unconditionally, and I'm amazed that there's nothing they could do that would cause me to stop loving them. And it humbles me to realize, oh my goodness, that's that's God's unconditional love for Israel and for me. And that's what part of what uh, says that you made in this image, that you're like The God loves community. God is love. And so he makes us in his image. Um, so, let's see. The last thing here is... Um, what is the nature of creation? And the thing that Lauren wants us to know is that it was a mess at the beginning. Uh, I don't want to say it was completely chaotic as what Marduk was born in, but it was a mess. Uh, and so God took this and divided you know, between the waters, created dry land, created the heavens, creates this orderly world uh, it's kind of like when you sculpt something, what do you start with? Start with this muddy clay. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about pottery. Uh, and you make it into something beautiful. And that's what God is doing. But did he finish that on day six? Was it done? Was creation what he had planned and what he wanted for all time? No, he told Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply. And he, um, he planted a garden and he wanted them to take care of it as, as it grew and to make it, make it productive and to take care of each other. And to, again, we're getting ahead into next week. And so that is the point that uh, Lauren has to do and I think that's probably what we want, what, uh, we want to say about it. Uh, I got one more question. Thanks for your pastime. One more question or comment? I have a quick question for you. When you're talking about um, other creation stories, uh, so when when do you think that the Bible, I mean that the, the, the um, Pentateuch, when the first five books of the Bible were written? Look at the time. Because I've heard people say that it wasn't written until they were in exile in Babylon. But I've always thought that Moses wrote it after in the Exodus. This is a long discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. One, okay. One that bothers people. Okay. So yeah. 
and something that Old Testament scholars know more about than I. So okay. I really am going to duck your question here. Uh, but I, I have some feelings about that. And, uh, so quickly, I think Moses is behind it somehow, but then it was revised a lot. Okay. We'll just leave it that well, have <laughs> Last thing. Well, I'm just going to say, one of the things that it seems like archaeologists are digging up is, is the trade routes, the sea routes, all of those things were active a whole lot longer than what we thought they were. And so all of these ideas are just being traded back and forth through caravans Absolutely. And, and everything. So it's not it's not like Israel is this isolated little place. And so they're saying, who are we? They were on crossroads for one day. Yes. And then these, yeah. they've been under all sorts of uh, empires. These were big empires. Lots of civilization coming in. Okay, we'll stop there and uh, thank you for being here. Look thank forward you. to getting to know all of you. <laughs>